This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you very much. Well, it's always a pleasure for me to speak to this group. We um, have six PAs in our, in our office, and they are fantastic. They're fantastic. They call me in to see, uh, they get all the acute cases, uh, most interesting cases, because you can't get in to see me for four months. Um, and so they call me in for the great cases, and we are very blessed to have them in our department. So um, always a pleasure speaking to this group. Well, I have to talk to you about pigmentary disorders in one hour. This usually two hours for melasma alone and two hours for vitiligo alone. So vamanos, we're going to do this super fast. All right, I have no conflicts of interest. Let's go through these questions. I'm not really good at this, but let me see if I can do this. Uh, there you go, 10, 9, and here comes the music. Okay, so living melanocytes in the dermis melasma. Next question. Common location for acanthosis nigricans of the face, uh, zygomatic prominences. Okay, next question. Which wavelengths of light can induce hyperpigmentation in an individual with skin type 5? Four, all of the above. And which form of phototherapy causes the most hyperpigmentation? Um, PUVA. And then second is all are about the same. And then the process by which a patient initially develops photosensitivity to phototherapy, but after a few weeks is able to tolerate higher doses without photosensitivity is called photoadaptation. All right, so let's move on. Melasma, extremely common. Um, we did a study in Dallas, about 9% of Latina women have melasma at one time, 4% have had it in the past. Affected by hormones, pregnancy, and oral contraceptives. It may fade um, postpartum, but many times it doesn't. It's more common in the brown races. 90% uh, of our women, although in India it seems greater than 10% of patients are men, worsened by UVB, UVA light, and psychologically distressing a distinct morphology. So let's take a look at this morphology. How do you distinguish melasma from other uh, disorders? Melasma likes the central forehead whereas lichen planus pigmentosus likes the lateral upper forehead. Melasma likes to come above the eyebrow and sometimes involve the eyebrow. Melasma follows the rule that it does not go below the superior orbital rim. It does not go above the inferior orbital rim. Melasma likes the zygomatic prominence, whereas acanthosis nigricans likes the concave area below the zygomatic prominence. Melasma usually does not involve the tip of the nose, 
whereas sarcoidosis and drug-induced pigmentation likes the tip of the nose. Melasma tends to have curved lines at the edges, whereas pigmentary demarcation lines are straight. Melasma typically does not go below the mandible, whereas poikiloderma of savat typically does go below the mandible. Uh, melasma usually does not involve the nasolabial fold, whereas seborrheic dermatitis and drug-induced hyperpigmentation does involve the nasolabial fold. Um, these are just some of the things that you should know about melasma to help you distinguish it uh, from other disorders. So these women have melasma. They have it on the zygomatic prominence. Melasma often has a more hyperpigmented border versus the center, which tends to be high, uh, less pigmented. And you can see it's tracking up right above the eyebrow, going up the central forehead. This woman, on the other hand, has some melasma, but look at this. She has mandibular pigmentation, which is going down. And that mandibular pigmentation, if you biopsy it, looks actually like poikiloderma savat. So that area really is not going to respond so well to hydroquinone. It's going to need Retin-A or some type of uh, retinoid or some other treatment. This person has very small lesions, and this is due to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, right? Because they're not large like the melasma macules that I showed you. This person is already having pigmentation in her lower eyelid. It is going above the inferior orbital rim. Why is that? Because she has been aggressively treated with microdermabrasion leading to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And believe it or not, she was treated for melasma, and yet she got PIH in areas where you're not supposed to get melasma. These two patients have asymmetrical circular hyperpigmented macules, and they're very well circumscribed. And they're, they're the same color, pretty much top to bottom, left to right. These are lentigines. Asian patients, Eastern Asian patients, usually don't age with wrinkles as much as they age with lentigines. These are not melasma. Why is that important? These you can treat with a laser. Melasma you cannot. Hori nevis. Did you know that 4.2% of Chinese women have a hori nevis? What is a hori nevis? Described by Dr. Hori, it's acquired bilateral nevus avoda-like macule. Why is that important? Well, first of all, hori nevi look different from melasma because each macule is only two or three or four millimeters in diameter, and they're all the same size. Second of all, they're a little bit grayish, not just brown. Why? Because they're living melanocytes in the dermis, living melanocytes. Melasma gives you melanophages in the dermis, which is dead melanin sitting inside macrophages. Why is that important? Because you treat hori nevus with laser. You do not treat uh, melasma with laser. These patients respond very well to lasers because of the living melanocytes. This patient has hyperpigmentation, but notice it goes below the mandible. Notice that bluish color. This is not melasma. This is... Um, uh, drug-induced uh, hyperpigmentation from minocycline. This patient has hyperpigmentation of the mandible. She has involvement of the tip of the nose. She has involvement of the lower eyelid. This is not melasma. She has drug-induced hyperpigmentation from etodilac, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. This patient has hyperpigmentation, which is gray, on the upper lateral forehead, not a common location for melasma. She indeed has lichen planus pigmentosis. She's from India. Lichen planus and lichen planus pigmentosis are more common in that population. This young man comes in with hyperpigmentation. 
you notice it's not on his zygomatic prominence. You notice it's in the concave area below the zygomatic prominence. Then you look at his neck, and you've made the diagnosis of acanthosis nigricans. This young man needs a hemoglobin A1C. He needs to be worked up for that. Another patient showing the hyperpigmentation below the zygomatic prominence and the skin tags because hyperinsulinemia is a growth factor. That growth factor causes the epidermis to make acanthosis nigricans, and it causes skin tags to occur, um, that hyperinsulinemia due to her obesity. This patient has hyperpigmentation of both upper and lower eyelids. This is not melasma. This is simply dark circles around the eye, which is due to uh, just pigment. Now, this man has both lichen planus pigmentosis. You can see the grayish pigmentation. But look at this line. Look at this straight line right here. And then look at the next patient. She has a straight line right there. And look at the next patient. He has a straight line right here. This is not melasma. This is pigmentary demarcation line. If you look at your patients on the front of their arm, many of them will have pigmentary demarcation line A. Others will have pigmentary demarcation line B, which is in the back of their leg. Uh, there's the type C on the sternum. But on the face, there's pigmentary demarcation line F as you see over here. There's a G, and there's also the rarest one, which is H. And indeed, this patient was born with the tendency of having pigmentary demarcation line. There's not a good treatment for this. They're born with this pigmentary demarcation line. And don't mistake this for melasma. Melasma is a chronic disorder. Uh, we see women who get it in their 20s when they have their babies. Then, the babe, then after the baby is born, it goes away. And then all of a sudden, when she's 30, she gets it, and it stays till menopause. It stays for decades. I treat melasma like diabetes. I treat it until it's gone, and then I move them to a milder agent, perhaps an over-the-counter agent with kojic acid. But I never stop for 25 years from the time she's 30 till the time she's 55 when she goes through menopause because it's a chronic disorder. Look at those numbers. The mean duration in these studies, 9 years, 10 years, 8 years, 12 years, 12 years. This is not something where you say, take this for three months, come back in a year. It's not going to work in these patients. They tend to be chronic. The other thing we found out recently is that visible light can cause melasma. These are 20 volunteers who were tested on their back. Notice the two types of skin that are brown. Those are that's a type 5 skin. And notice that not only did UVA1 cause pigmentation, but look at visible light. That's visible light. That's this light that's shining on me. That's the computer screen she is looking at all day long. That's the light in her, in her office, in her kitchen. That's the light coming into, into her office. Visible light can induce pigmentation. Well, that's bad news because our typical sunscreens don't block against visible light. However, if you combine sunscreen with iron oxide 3.2%, as they did in this study, they found a 21-factor uh, protection against visible light. Iron oxide is that brown color that you see in makeup. Um, I was in the mall the other day and went past the MAC the Mac store, and I can't believe how many people are in the Mac store. And the Mac is full of iron oxide containing makeup. Um, and that's good because that makeup um, will block against visible light. Unfortunately, I don't know the percent in the Mac uh, makeup. 
Zinc oxide, if you want to block visible light, it has to be over 200 nanometers, and that looks white. It looks like the lifeguard's nose. Nobody wants to look like that. When you have micronized zinc oxide, it protects against UVA and UVB, but not visible light. However, if you add 3% iron oxide, like these products, the Avene and this one's at Sally Beauty Supply, Femme Couture, um, if you have 3% iron oxide, then you will be successful in blocking visible light. So my melasma patients use a standard sunscreen followed by an iron oxide containing foundation or powder pressed makeup from Sally Beauty Supply or Avene on top. And I have them put that on every three or four hours, even if they're indoors the whole day long. A study was done in which they gave half the patients the sunscreen with iron oxide, the other's sunscreen by itself, and look at the ones who got the, with the iron oxide. They did better than the ones without the iron oxide. So this is true proof that iron oxide containing makeups applied on top of sunscreen, standard sunscreens, helps melasma. The other thing that we have found out is that if you treat melasma with a depigmenting agent like hydroquinone, the melanin goes down, but melanocytes actually go up. The, the product goes down, but the factories go up. And that's bad news, because if the patient suddenly stops your depigmenting agent, you have all these factories ready to make product like that, and that's why she gets rebound hyperpigmentation when you stop treatment. So melanocytes actually go up, as you can see here. They went up with treatment. Of course, hydroquinone still, 60 years after it was invented, is the number one depigmenting agent in the world. There is nothing as effective as hydroquinone. 4% uh, hydroquinone gives you a clear or almost clear in 40% of patients. And I think that's pretty, uh, pretty accurate. However, the patients who come to our offices are the 60% who are not responding to 4% hydroquinone, um, especially those of us who specialize in pigmentation. Irritation and ochronosis are actually rare. People say, doctor, I heard, I heard about ochronosis. It is really, really rare. And I'm going to show you how to diagnose it. Um, it happens more when you have lack of supervision. So when my patients get it from Mexico or other countries and there's lack of supervision, that's when you have a higher chance of getting ochronosis. And also if you combine it with resource all and other uh, agents. So here's how you diagnose ochronosis. You see this lady and you say, hmm, I see melasma here, but what's this black stuff? And then you look more closely and you see they're like pepper, like black pepper on her skin. Notice they're smaller than the hoary nevus I showed you. Remember, the hoary nevus was only, only, they were three to four millimeter macules, right? These are one millimeter macules. They look like pepper. They look like pepper. And then when you look at them with your dermatoscope, you see these little hyperpigmented black to very dark brown um, uh, small macules, like little dots. And when you look closer, you see these banana-shaped bodies, this little banana-shaped body. And sometimes you see little circles around the follicles. Well, if you biopsy it, here's the banana right there. If you do confocal, here's the banana right here. But now with your dermatoscopes, and I'm sure all of you carry around your dermatoscopes, um, you can make the diagnosis with your dermatoscope. You see the banana-shaped body. You see the dots. You stop the hydroquinone. And then you have to treat with other things, kojic acid, tretinoin, to try to 
get rid of it. So you can be assured that you're not, you're not having a patient with, with ochronosis with your dermatoscope. And then you can feel confident to continue the hydroquinone if you have any question. Now, in terms of triple combination cream, we all have heard about it. We all know about it. You can see in this cohort the difference between the melasma skin and the normal skin was 36 with this machine. It fell to 15. Nice response. In this cohort, it went from 32 down to 7. So it does seem to work. This was over six months. Now there are studies where hydroquinone has been used for 12 months without any toxicity. So I don't think there's any particular month duration that you have to limit hydroquinone use. In terms of preventing recurrence, in this study, they looked at 242 patients. And after they treated them for eight weeks, they either gave them uh, the triple combination twice a week or a tapering regimen, three times a week, twice a week, once a week. And 78% entered maintenance phase. And after, 53, uh, after six months, 53% remained relapse-free. Time to relapse was similar between groups. So one of the questions people ask me is, after I clear her, what do I do? Well, you can go to maintenance phase, three times a week or twice a week. You can use the triple combination cream, or you can go to daily kojic acid. You can go to daily uh, um, azelaic acid. You can go to 2% hydroquinone over the counter. There's many things you can do. The melasma severity of study entry, not maintenance, influenced the relapse rate. Both regimens were safe, and quality of life improved in those with improvement in melasma. But here's the key for irritation. Um, triple combination cream has a 44% irritation rate. I don't like that in my Latino, in my Asian, in my Middle Eastern, in any patient who has a tendency to get hyperpigmented. I do not like erythema in my melasma patients, because I know what that's going to lead to. It's going to lead to PIH. How do I block that? Why is it that my colleagues in Mexico and Brazil only had an 8% irritation rate, but, but the study we did in America had a 44% irritation rate? The secret was to apply a moisturizer before you apply the triple combination cream. Tell your patients that if you wake up in the morning, even with a little bit of erythema, I want you to take this moisturizer, and you can use you know, Cetaphil or Elta or, you know, any moisturizer you want, then apply the triple combination cream, your irritation drops to 8%. It's really important that they know that. Here's an example of patient treated with a triple combination cream. And this is a proprietary cream. It has a two-year shelf life. You can see very good results. Now, on the right, I don't like the erythema. I'm going to ask her to use a moisturizer before she applies it from now on. So what if that doesn't work? The patient comes in, you've given me the triple combination cream. It's not working. I'm using the sunscreen. Now what do I do? Well, here's your menu. You pick one from the left column, pick one from the middle column, and pick one from the right column. Each one of those are studies that have been published. So I have my own preference on this menu. I like 6% hydroquinone. I like 0.0125% tretinoin and I like 0.1% dexamethasone. I get a compounding pharmacy to mix those together. Patient gets it. She applies it every night. She keeps it in the refrigerator. It only lasts two or three months before it turns brown, but it really works. And here you can see a patient before I use the triple combination, and here you can see after just three months of the compounded cream. Now, this allows you as an expert in skin to customize it based on what you see on the patient. Suppose the patient comes back and she's not better. You, as the expert in the skin, can increase it to 7%, the hydroquinone. Suppose she comes back and she's irritated. 
you can reduce the tretinoin to 0.0075% or eliminate it. Suppose she comes back with telangiectasias, you can change dexamethasone to desonide or pimecrolimus. You're the expert, you look at the skin, you customize it based on what you see on the patient. Abuse. If a patient is in a country where there are no prescriptions needed to buy this stuff, here's what happens. You see telangiectasias, acne, hypertrichosis, confetti-like depigmentation, rosacea, and erythema. So you really have to monitor these patients. You need to see them every two or three months, not give them unlimited refills because there is a potential for abuse. This is one of the most exciting things to happen to melasma in my career, and that's tranexamic acid. It's not being used very broadly yet in the United States, but I think that's going to change. Our article should be published uh, fairly soon. We did a, a control study in Latino women. Tranexamic acid is a plasmin inhibitor, FDA-approved 2009 for menorrhagia, over-the-counter in some countries, used for hemorrhage, even intraoperatively, widely for melasma in East Asia. It's topical intradermal oral forms. The oral form is the most convenient. How does it work? Well, when plasminogen is changed to plasmin, it causes fibroblast growth factor, arachidonic acid, prostaglandins. These are very potent stimulants of, of melanocytes. And what causes, the, what causes the problem in the first place with plasminogen and this transfer to plasmin? Well, guess who's making it? The skin cells. And guess why they're making it? Once again, our old friend, our old enemy actually, is the sun. So the sun not only causes melanocytes to make more pigment naturally from stimulating MSH, but the sun causes keratinocytes to make plasminogen, which then causes the melanocytes to make more melanin. So now we know that the vascular system and tranexamic acid, I'm sorry, uh, plasminogen is, is part of it. Well, those X's is where tranexamic acid works. And they were using it for women with heavy menstrual bleeding in Asia, and their melasma was getting better. And so like dermatology, we find out some treatment first, then we go back and figure out how it works, why it works. So for menorrhagia, it's two pills, three times daily for up to five days. But in the melasma, we use a lower dose. We use uh, 325 milligrams twice a day uh, for the whole month, actually for several months. So you can't give it if the patient has a risk of thrombosis, any history of DVTs, PEs, stroke, heart attack, cigarette smoking, birth control pills, hypercoagulable states, we don't give it to those patients. Um, and in this retrospective review of 561 patients, 91.7% improved. This is the dose they use in, in uh, Singapore. We use 325 twice a day because that's all we have in the United States. Mean response in, seven, in two months, only 7% had adverse effects. Out of 561 um, patients, 560 did fine. The one lady who did not did do fine was asked, do you have a family history of thrombotic disease? She said no. Do you have any risk factors for thrombotic disease? She said no. And it turned out she lied. She hated her melasma so much, she lied about the thrombotic risk, and she got a thrombosis. So, you know, what can you do when they lie? Um, however, this has, now been, this has now been published 15 articles, and uh, we have been using it in Dallas for quite some time. So hopefully the article will come out soon, and you guys can see. Even a man, uh, here you can see the improvement with the tranexamic acid. Uh, and that makes sense because this is not a 
this particular mechanism is not hormone related. So over 12 studies, now there's even more, all from Asia except for the one we did. Um, there's the dose, that the, the usual dose, side effects are rare. I've already told you about contraindications. All right, let's talk about chemical peels. This is the only study that's ever been published that definitively showed chemical peels work for melasma. My friend Rashmi Sarkar in New Delhi treated patients with serial glycolic acid peels every three weeks. First three peels 30%, last three peels 40%. Maximum time of contact was three minutes. At the end, the people who got triple combination cream alone were 63% better. The people who got triple combination um, plus six peels were 80% better. So there was a 17% improvement with peels if you get the peels. So it definitely works, however, the difference was 17%. Now Rashmi gives it for free to these ladies from New Delhi. In my clinic, six of these pills would cost a lot of money. And 17% is usually not enough for patients to want to get it. So, um, you know, when we did it on half the face using a lower dose, 20 and 30% GA for four peels, we saw no difference. We tried it again with salicylic acid, no difference between both sides. So we don't feel like it has a great effect if you just give four peels, maybe six peels. You can see both sides got better, the sides that were peeled or the sides that were unpeeled. Here's the side that was peeled, she got better. Here's the side that was unpeeled, she got better the same. So chemical peels, I think really the, the jury is still out as to how effective they are for melasma. They are nowhere near what you see with hydroquinone, triple combination cream, or tranexamic acid in terms of the data. People want a quick fix though. Here's a Korean lady who came in, she's got melasma. She says, I want this peel. She got a TCA peel with chest nurse. Everything's looking good one month later. I'm sorry, one week later. You know, it looks like she's gonna have beautiful skin. She comes back a month later and she's got post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. You have to beware of being too aggressive with chemical peels in our melasma patients. Start low, go slow, and hopefully they, they can afford it. All right, what about laser? Well, triple combination cream and uh, pulse dye laser, it makes sense, right? I've already just told you that vascularity seems to be uh, an issue with melasma. I don't have time to give you all the pathogenesis of melasma, but just suffice it to say that the sun causes increased vascularity in the skin. So if you zap those blood vessels with the pulse dye laser, then conceivably melasma should get better. And indeed, that's what my friend Thierry Passeron did in southern France. In southern France, at the beginning of the summer, you can see the cream alone, the Massey score was 6.76. At the end of treatment, it was 4.35 um, with the cream alone. And at the end of this French summer, it was six. But the group that got the, pul the pulse dye laser for three sessions, they did much better and they remained well. So this may be a laser that you could try on your patients. Here she is baseline. She got this treated at the end of the summer. This was clear, but she got melasma outside the treated areas, outside the pulse dye laser treated areas. So if you're gonna use a laser, this may be a consideration. What about IPL? This is one of the best studies that was done with IPL and melasma. 56 patients, half the face was treated with triple combination cream, the other half with control cream. Both sides got IPL at weeks two and six, um, and 57% were clear, almost clear on the combination side versus only 23% on IPL only. So here you can see the combination side had a much higher clear or almost clear versus the IPL only. 
Look at this lady on the IPL plus cream side. This is the IPL only side. This lady, she got worse on the IPL only side. IPL plus cream side, she got better. So if you're going to use this, you have to be really good at it, and you have to combine it with the cream. Laser toning is the hottest thing in Asia. Women are buying packages of 50 sessions of laser toning, going twice a week to the mall and having it done. They are minuscule, minuscule doses of light that, that are given in Asia to these, uh, to these uh, women. In this well-done study, they gave it every week for five weeks, and you can see the incredible improvement, 93 and 76 versus 20 and 24 on the control side. However, four out of 22 had rebound hyperpigmentation that was at least as bad or worse than the original melasma, and unfortunately, four of them had depigmentation or hypopigmentation from the laser. So again, you have to be very careful with laser toning. This is a very well done study. This was one half of the face. This was the other half of the face. I wish all studies were done like this, where this half of the face is the control, this is the treated side. Look how nicely it went almost to zero. And here you see a patient baseline. Here you can see at the end of treatment, and this is uh, 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 one, one or two months later. One month later. This woman, she got much better on this side. But look at that rebound. The rebound is even worse than the baseline. So that have, you have to watch out for. And then this is the thing that we never want to see. How would you like to treat vitiligo in the middle of melasma? That's a disaster. And that's what happened with this laser. So you have to be super careful with lasers that you don't cause depigmentation or hypopigmentation. So this is my algorithm for acute patients who are really, you know, active, I mean, severe or, or you know, uh, significant melasma. Hydroquinone, triple combination, compounded tranexamic acid, question mark on peels or lasers. You go to maintenance, you can use 2% hydroquinone. It's Ambi, Porcelana, Esoterica. There's so many different products you can use. Triple combination cream two to three times a week. Kojic acid, there's several things you can use. You can get these on Amazon for $19, uh, some of these uh, over-the-counter things. So to conclude, rule out other causes of facial pigmentation. Sunscreens are critical for success, including visible light. Hydroquinone is still the most effective depigmenting agent. Triple combination cream is effective in the majority of patients. I think tranexamic acid, look for that. Look for those publications. Close follow-up of patients is important. Most patients need long-term treatment, and it's very important. All right. Switching from hyper to depigmentation. Vitiligo. Vitiligo is common. Uh, we think it affects about 2 million Americans. It's progressive. All races are affected. Um, it's not as noticeable in light-skinned patients. Significant effect on quality of life. Disease course is unpredictable, and unfortunately, we have no biomarkers, and that may change in the near future. Peak age of onset, unfortunately, is young, and that's when these children are being teased in elementary school. That's when they're trying to go from being a child to an adolescent in middle school. That's when they're trying to determine who they are from adolescence to being an adult. And it's very, very difficult to live with vitiligo. There's an increased risk of autoimmune disease. The most important one is thyroid disease. 15 to 20% of vitiligo patients develop thyroid disease during their life. So if there's one test I ask patients to get once a year, it's a TSH. Just 
just get a TSH. I don't get antibodies because if the antibodies are positive, they're just going to worry. They may never get thyroid disease. They're just going to worry. So I get a TSH once a year. The others are less than 2%. So I'm not checking B12 levels. I'm not checking hemoglobin A1C. I'm not checking cortisol. I'm just checking the TSH once a year. The genetic risk factors, if your parents had vitiligo, you have a 5% chance of getting vitiligo. If your parents do not have vitiligo, I already told you it's a 1% chance. If your twin, your identical twin has vitiligo, you only have a 23% chance of getting vitiligo. What that means is that the environment is really important in the development of vitiligo. Your innate immune system is what starts first when there's environmental triggers, then your adaptive immune system gets, in, gets into play and that's when the disaster happens. And sometimes it's chemicals. So when you look at the patient, you wanna know the age of onset, location of the first lesion. Patients who have lesions on the hands, they tend to do poorly. The, the, the length of stability, rapidity of progression, the areas of involvement, including the genitals, the triggers, um, like friction, trauma, contact dermatitis, past history of autoimmune disease, family history of autoimmune disease, thyroid disease, other autoimmune diseases, contraindication of light therapy, occupation. Uh, occupation's important because if he's uh, an electrician, he's constantly scraping his hands. He's got vitiligo all over his hands. He's got to wear gloves. He's got to get some protection. Uh, ability to comply with phototherapy treatments, quality of life, and symptoms of depression. It is estimated that up to 23% of vitiligo patients have major, major depression. Skin phototype distribution, including your Woods lamp exam, and be careful when you pull out that Woods lamp because the Caucasian patients have broken down grown men and cried when I gave them a mirror and I pulled out the Woods lamp and they saw and they say, I look like a monster doctor. They didn't realize how much vitiligo they had on their face. So I do ask them, I'm very careful in asking them, do you want to see this or not? Morphology of the lesions, um, mucosal surfaces, percent body surface area, leukotrichia, whether they have white hairs or not, and then signs of activity, which I'm going to go over, stigmata of autoimmune diseases, especially thyroid, halo nevi, and pattern of repigmentation. Why are halo nevi important? Because you all, I'm sure, have seen a halo nevus. It's a mole with a white circle around it. As that patient gets older, that brown part of the mole goes away, but the white circle remains, and that white circle will never go away for the whole patient's life unless you cut out the mole cells deep in the dermis. Those mole cells, those nevus cells, actually emit a substance that keeps the melanocytes from the edges to actually cover that area. So halo nevi don't get better over time. So what are the markers of vitiligo activity, and why is this important? Well, if the person has trichrome vitiligo, you might use systemic steroids to, to stop it in its tracks. What is trichrome vitiligo? You see the normal skin, you see hypopigmented skin, and then you see the depigmented skin. If I biopsy this hypopigmented skin, I would see hundreds of CD8-positive T cells secreting interferon gamma, killing the melanocytes. I want them out of there, and I can get them out of there with systemic steroids. Uh, as well as topical steroids. This is the other sign, the Kebner phenomenon. This, this young man, his, his brother scratched his back, and two weeks later, he developed a white, white lesion. Again, if I biopsied it, I would see hundreds of CD8-positive T cells. But the most, the most uh, critical sign 
I'm not just saying this because I published this, but this has now been repeated in multiple studies, is the confetti-like lesion. This African-American woman came in with confetti-like lesions on her hands, and I thought it was curious. Had I known back then what I know now, I would have treated her with systemic steroids, but I didn't, because I didn't know. And here's what she looked like in 16 weeks, and here's what she looked like in 30, 30, 31 weeks. Those confetti-like lesions are a, are a sign of rapidly advancing vitiligo. If you see someone who has vitiligo with little confetti-like lesions that are developing, know that that is a very important sign of active vitiligo. In fact, if you take one of those little confetti-like lesions, and if you biopsy it, you will see this is the normal pigment, this is normal pigment, this is the entire confetti lesion right here, from here to here. And if you start looking, you will see those CD8-positive T cells. Those cells are not supposed to be there. They're not in a person's skin who doesn't have vitiligo. They are not supposed to be there. They are crawling up into the epidermis. They are finding the melanocyte right there. They are secreting interferon gamma, and they're killing it. This is the cause of vitiligo. And our job is to get rid of these cells with clobetasol, with systemic steroids, with protopic, uh, tacrolimus. And then our job is to stimulate the melanocytes to bring the color back. Those are the two pillars of therapy of vitiligo. Remove the bad cells, bring in the good cells. There are two types of repigmentation patterns. There's follicular pattern and there's marginal pattern. Follicular pattern is great. Marginal pattern stinks. The marginal pattern only brings the color in a couple millimeters. In a Caucasian, it's two millimeters. A Latino, it's four millimeters. African-American, it's six millimeters. That's how much the melanocytes move. We want follicular repigmentation like you see on the elbow. Psychological impact. I'm sure you have talked to vitiligo patients who are very frustrated. Uh, it's a huge stigma in certain cultures. It goes back hundreds, hundreds of years. Abers papyrus in Egypt. In Leviticus chapter 13, God tells Moses and Aaron, the high priests of the Jewish race, how to tell the difference between white skin and dark skin, white hairs and black hairs, and distinguish those with leprosy versus those who have a form of depigmentation that is not contagious. In India, where leprosy is very common, this is called white leprosy in Sanskrit. And so these patients have a huge stigma. Even in villages and towns where they know that it's not leprosy, they don't want to marry that person to marry into the family because they know that there's a genetic uh, influence for vitiligo. So amazingly, in certain cultures, like, like in India, if you are a 14-year-old boy and you develop vitiligo, the stress is unbelievable because not only are you going to be stigmatized, but now your 22-year-old sister can't get married because you have vitiligo. This gives you some insight as to why your patients come in sometimes so upset about having vitiligo, ready to have transplant. I'll give you $3,000 right now if you just take this skin and put it on my foot and repigment it. Please do something for it. The stigma is unbelievable. All of those things happen, anxiety, embarrassment, depression, seclusion, et cetera, and young patients, unfortunately, have the worst case. So I just want my skin to be the same color as what they tell me. Sometimes I feel like a monster, and I'm tired of the stares. Doctor, every time I go to the grocery store, little kids are afraid. They pull their mom's skirt saying, Mommy, what is that? The, the cashier says, just put your money on the counter, because the cashier doesn't want to touch that hand thinking they're going to get 
some type of contagious disease. Imagine having to live like that your whole life. You get tired. You never leave your house. You fear your son will never get married. I feel like dying. And indeed, this young man, David, unfortunately, at the age of 25, because of the vitiligo on his face, he just couldn't stand it. And he did take his life um, because of the vitiligo. So this is something that has profound psychological effects. My children, my, my pediatric patients, I have an especial, a special hurt in my heart for them. Because as you know, children can be quite cruel if a child is different. So I give every parent this book, different just like me. I just order them off Amazon. And so what April Mitchell did is for her daughter, Lori, who has vitiligo, she wrote this book. And this book, the teacher reads it to the classroom and she shows how everything is different around us. People are different, clothing is different, flowers are different, uh, trees are different, everything is different around us and therefore we also are different in our skin color, in our hair color, in our eye color and so that's okay, it's okay to be different. We need to give support to these children, we need to give support to patients with vitiligo. The differential diagnosis, hypopigmentation, depigmentation can be caused by many disorder, so you have to make the right, um, the right diagnosis. So look at the color, the distribution, arrangement, shape, border, surface characteristics. Sometimes you need a biopsy. So this girl comes in, parents say, oh my goodness, she's got vitiligo. You know she doesn't have vitiligo. You know she's just a little girl who likes to play outside, and she got dry skin in the wintertime, and, and she got a little irritation, a little eczema, and guess what? Those lymphocytes secrete something that keeps the melanocytes from tanning. She doesn't have vitiligo. She has pityriasis alba of the face. She just needs some eucerin sunscreen. This patient has seborrheic dermatitis and a little bit too enthusiastic plucking of her eyebrows that caused her to get hypopigmentation of that area. This is seborrheic dermatitis. This patient has hypopigmentation, not depigmentation. You look at it, you say, hmm, that looks a little bit funny. Uh, and you could give maybe a topical steroid in case you thought it was pityriasis alba, but then they come back three months later, they're not better at all, and you biopsy it, this is mycosis fungoides, and mycosis fungoides can give you hypopigmentation. This patient comes in, and they have these hypopigmented areas with slight scale. This is tinea versicolor. Uh, tinea versicolor, have a suspicion when it's hypopigmented, not depigmented, take your scraping, look for the spaghetti and meatballs, make the diagnosis, and you can treat them. This patient has hypopigmentation in the center. Now, he's, we're fortunate, he's lighter skin, we can see that red ring, but in India, with a darker skin patient, you can't see that red ring, because this is leprosy. And leprosy can give you hypopigmentation and depigmentation. This patient comes in and says, oh, doctor, one of my aunts has vitiligo, and look, I'm getting it. And you look at her leg, and all of her lesions are less than five millimeters in diameter. And this is not vitiligo, this is idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis, likely caused by sun damage. You don't want to treat this patient with phototherapy. Now this patient has those small little dots, but there's a larger lesion in the center. This is confetti-like depigmentation due to vitiligo, and this person is at high risk of developing very rapidly advancing vitiligo. This patient comes in, and she's depigmented because that's where she puts her jandlok um, bindi. Anyway, the, the thing that I'm just trying to see how to say it in English, um, the, the, the forehead spot. And, and so she's actually, um, she's actually um, allergic to, the, to that particular pigment. Now, that didn't bother her. She just went up a little bit uh, uh, higher. She's going to have two spots here soon. But 
You know, cult culture is culture, always very important. <laughs> this person has both idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis and a rheumatologist injected her ankle arthritis with the steroid with a needle that was a little bit too short and got the steroid into the soft tissue, which then went up the lymphatic. And you can see the lymphatic going up. This young man comes in, and father says, I think he's got vitiligo. And you look at it, you go, hmm, that just looks weird. And the weird thing about it is the edge. Look at the jagged edge. In fact, the edge looks like the coast of Maine. So dermatologists, as soon as they hear coast of Maine, they think of birthmarks, like Albright syndrome. And this is not Albright syndrome. This is a nevus depigmentosis. So how do I know? Because he came back four years later, and it was exactly the same size. How do you tell the difference between a nevus depigmentosis and vitiligo? A nevus depigmentosis is a misnomer. It should be called a nevus hypopigmentosis. It's actually hypopigmented, not depigmented. And it has that jagged edge. And when you start looking at your patients, you'll see a lot of people who have this light-colored mole that's been there since birth or almost since birth or during childhood, and they've had it their whole life. That's a nevus depigmentosis. You don't treat that like vitiligo. It's not going to work. It just doesn't respond to, to anything. So what is our treatment? And why are people so pessimistic about treatment for vitiligo? Well, it's because you have to set expectations. It's a long treatment. Uh, patience is a virtue. And we, I shoot for 75% repigmentation. And few patients achieve 100% repigmentation. Uh, good baseline images are the key. That'll motivate the patient, and it'll motivate you. You need to have those good baseline images. So my treatment algorithm for localized vitiligo is topicals, like topical uh, steroids, topical tacrolimus, antioxidants, phototherapy. We do skin transplants for generalized vitiligo. The only difference is we'll add systemic steroids for active patients. So here's a young man, 14-year-old boy, applied clobetasol one week on, one week off for two years. How do you get a 14-year-old kid to do anything, uh, much less uh, one week on, one week off for two years? It was because I had that photo on the left. Every time he came in, he said, doctor, I don't think I'm much better. Are you putting on the cream? Yes, I'm doing it, but I'm not better. I pulled out a mirror. I pulled out the picture. He looked at him. He goes, oh, yes, I am better. That motivated him to do the next two months and the next two months. Please take baseline pictures. That motivates your patients to continue. Even on the genitalia, topical steroids can be effective if it's not on the glands if it's, uh, and if the lesions are small. You can see here he got better on the genitalia with clobetasol. This young man has, uh, has uh, segmental vitiligo. Segmental vitiligo is usually very difficult to treat, but these are Indian patient parents. The Indian parents were so upset that he was developing this. They brought him in within the first two months. We started him on clobetasol. I said, give him a little bit of light. I think they took it too far to the point where even his upper lip has turned tan. They just put him in the sun for days and days and days. But it worked. It worked. This young man's vitiligo is gone just about. But boy, is he tan. Um, this is tacrolimus. Tacrolimus uh, seemed to work, but um, I think it works best in, in, in sun-exposed areas. I tend to use clobetasol even on the face as long as it's not in the eyelids. Um, we did a study. The, the blue color is tacrolimus after three months in phototherapy. The pink color is Vaseline. 
after three months in phototherapy. There wasn't any difference between Vaseline and Tecolamus, and the difference in price is about $300. So I tend to use clobetasol more than uh, Tecolamus. I know clobetasol price is going up. You can always switch to betamethasone, dipropionate, or another class one steroid. Mini-pulse dexamethasone. Remember I told you a few minutes ago that when I see that confetti-like lesion, I saw that woman's hand, I should have put her on systemic steroids. This is, this is one of the studies that showed that it stops it in its tracks. Now, my friend, Dr. Persad, he used 2.5 milligrams two consecutive days a week. Uh, we don't have that particular dose in America. I use four milligrams um, with my patients. But you can see 92% had a rest at a mean of 13 weeks. Some repigmentation, but it arrested the disease. The confetti stopped. The trichrome stopped. The Kebner stopped. And, and I also uh, combine it with topicals. And you can see the side effects are, are, are usually not that bad. Some of my patients have uh, weight gain. Some of my patients have insomnia. How well does phototherapy work? This slide is something that I, I tell this to all of my patients on phototherapy. Because this slide is actually been repeated. This particular data has been repeated in several studies. And here's the bottom line. If you do phototherapy three times a week, after three months, you will get 25% of your color back on average. After six months, you will get 50% of your color back. After nine months, you will get 75% of your color back. Then it plateaus. Then it plateaus. So on average, after nine months of treatment, vitiligo patients get 75% of their color back. Some only 50%, some 90%, but that's the average, and that has been shown in study after study, study after study. In terms of color match, the guy up on top got PUVA, the guy on the bottom got narrowband UVB. The guy on top is Caucasian, he should have the best color match, but he has a lousy color match because he got PUVA. The guy on the bottom should have a horrible color match, he's Indian, he has more pigmentation, he has a perfect color match. Narrowband gives you a really good color match. Puva gives you a lousy cover color match, which is why we've switched to narrowband UVB. Phototherapy, there are multiple machines that can be used. These are in-office machines, um, and we have a huge phototherapy center at UT Southwestern, and we treat hundreds and hundreds of patients. It works, but it's a hassle, right? You have to come to my office three times a week, you know, fight traffic, get parking, and all that. Um, and so what we do is a lot of home, home narrowband UVB. And if you can get this approved by your insurance company, um, patients learn how to do this, and it works very nicely. And it's actually a lot more cost-effective. All right, show you some slides. Uh, this is just PUVA, when we used to use PUVA, very good, very good results. And I bring you this slide because this man um, had PUVA for two months, and I had a baseline picture. Suppose I had never had that picture on the left. And he came in, he said, doctor, I've come 24 times, my copay is $30, I have spent hundreds of dollars, I'm taking these pills that nauseate me, I have to wear these sunglasses, and I only have 10 dots, I don't think it's working. And I would have looked, I would have said, yeah, I don't think it's working either. But I had that picture. I had that baseline picture, I said, no, wait a minute, you are better, and indeed I he was motivated, I was motivated, and look at the man in five months, look at him in eight months, and to this day, 10 years later, he continues to be totally repigmented as a salesman because we believed, we believed in the treatment. One of the reasons why there's so much pessimism for phototherapy is because we ourselves don't believe in it because we don't take baseline pictures. Another patient, you can see baseline, you can see after 12 months, 
he was one of the few people where his white hair turned black. I would never promise a patient that their white hair is going to turn black, but sometimes it does happen. Another patient, now that I've told you the signs of, of activity, can you see the two signs of activity in this picture on the left? Can you see the trichrome? Can you see the confetti lesions? This is the type of patient you're going to be aggressive with. And you can see that the active signs are gone, and he's getting repigmentation. A Caucasian patient, I had to pull out the woods lamp to really see it. I said, you know, we can go ahead and treat you with phototherapy, but, you know, if you just wear a lot of sunscreens, let the vitiligo just kind of take over your face. No one can tell. He goes, Doc, I live in Wichita Falls. I need as much protection as I can get because I can get sunburns. I said, let's try it. Lo and behold, he got a lot better. He got a lot better after five months of neuroband UVB. He repigmented nicely. Photoadaptation, what is that? Photoadaptation is when a patient complains to you after two months saying, I can't get above 300 millijoules. What's going on? Or, I'm sorry, after a month. And you tell them about photoadaptation. You tell them after three or four weeks, actually what will happen is your body will be able to absorb more energy because it will adapt. And you can see MED testing at baseline after three weeks, 66% uh, of the patient it rose significantly and with continued treatment. So explaining photoadaptation helps them get through those difficult first eight weeks of phototherapy. We have the eczema laser. You can use it to treat local areas. It's good in patients who don't have a lot of disease, but it's expensive. The advantage is you only treat twice a week. Early treatment gives better results. Recent disease, which is less than two years, look how many got good to excellent response, 61%. Longstanding, which is over two years, only 27% got excellent response. We need to teach the public. We need to tell parents. We need to tell people that if you get vitiligo, if one of your loved ones gets vitiligo, get them into the dermatologist within two years because I have a better chance of curing those patients than waiting 10 years. So our protocol, three times a week for 6 to 12 months. I think this is in your handout. <coughs> And then uh, after we have maximized and plateaued, I dropped it twice a week for a month, once a week for a month, once every other week for two months, and then I stop. Only 50% I'm able to stop. The others, a lesion or two comes back, so I keep them in maintenance, maybe for a year or two of phototherapy. Safety. Doctor, am I going to get cancer from this phototherapy? Well, here's a 477-patient uh, study. They looked at them for 4.3 years. That's a long time for phototherapy. And you can see six patients got skin cancer. Three were expected to get skin cancer. It was not melanoma. Other studies have not shown an increased incidence of any skin cancer. So you don't get melanoma. You may, after many years, get squamous or basal cell carcinoma if you're Caucasian. All right, I'm running out of time. I just want to tell you satisfaction, uh, the highest with phototherapy versus others. So I've already told you, set expectation, 25, 50, 75, expose all areas evenly. I don't like to shield initially because patients always make a mistake. They say, doctor, I'm going to put sunscreen here because I don't have vitiligo here, and then they mess up one day, and then they burn. So I say, no sunscreen, no shielding. The only thing I shield is the, the penis and, and testicles with the sock. That's all I shield in these patients with active disease. We start at 200 millijoules, increased by 15%, small stool to maximize exposure to feet, extra exposure to hands and feet, mineral oils if the areas are dry, three times a week is ideal, and then twice a week you have to have a minimum two days between treatments. The goal is to maintain a carnation flower pink color. Every grocery store in Dallas, Texas has a pink carnation flower. I say, I'm not satisfied until you get it carnation pink, and I want it to be carnation pink for nine months. 
and then we can reliably see 75% on average of your color coming back. Carnation pink color is very important. And I've already talked to you about many of those other things, oral antioxidants, clobetasol, cut the scalp hair if possible so it'll reach the scalp, home phototherapy, and if they get a funny rash, you may want to check an ANA because they may uh, have uh, elevated ANA or lupus. And then I've already talked about the steroids. Transplantation is what we use in patients who have maximized improvement, and now we need to move melanocytes because they have no melanocytes in there. So I use punch grafts, I use blister grafts, I use uh, suspension grafts with melanocytes. And you can see this young lady, she had this on her temple. She used phototherapy. All she got were five dots coming in. So I made three blisters on her hip using a suction device. I cut off the tops of the blisters. I incubated them in trypsin. I scraped off the melanocytes. I then centrifuged them down. And then I had a half a cc Botox syringe full of melanocytes, 40,000 melanocytes. Then I lasered off her white skin with an erbium laser. I put the melanocytes on there. I covered it with the collagen dressing. At baseline, this is what she looked like. In three months, she looked like that. In three months, she was already full of melanocytes. So this is what can be done. There's only three of us doing this in America, but I'm hoping more of us will be doing this in America with these melanocyte transplants. If the patient is so far gone that you just decide and the patient decides that almost all my face is gone, almost all my body is gone, just go ahead and finish the job with monobenzyl ether of hydroquinone. This is what Michael Jackson did. He removed his color. This was found in his death certificate. Monobenzyl ether of hydroquinone was one of the medicines that was on there, and this is how he did it. This is what we do in some of our patients. And this guy looks great. I mean, he looks like Kenny Rogers on the right. I mean, he looks really great. So, you know, we just removed it, and, and he looks great. Uh, another patient, he's lucky because his hairs didn't turn white. Vitiligo, for some reason, did not attack his hairs. It only attacked his skin. I got rid of the brown spot. He looks like he's a Latino guy. He looks like a güero. He's like, he's like, um, he's like light skin, you know? He looks totally normal. He's got black hairs. Future treatment. I told you about a uh, little bit about adaptive and, and uh, innate immunity. So what happens is interferon gamma is secreted. Jack and stat by keratinocytes make CXCL9 and 10. That brings in all these hundreds of cells I showed you. It kills the melanocyte. Well, we now have JAK inhibitors. And so I'm happy to tell you that next month, the first topical JAK inhibitor study trial will be starting, and then December another one, and next summer another one. So I'm hoping to be invited back to SDPA, and I'll tell you more about those uh, in the future. And uh, we're also going to have biomarkers, and a lot of this is from my friend John Harris and I. We do the translational research. You can tell I really love this stuff. So this is what I do. So uh, this, just to summarize, when you see these patients with vitiligo, you need to have a careful history and physical exam. You need to look at associated autoimmune diseases, consider psychological evaluation, um, talk to your patient. The differential diagnosis is long. A biopsy may be required. Treatments are effective, require a prolonged course. Future treatments are being investigated. And please direct your patients to the Global Vitiligo Foundation and other uh, support groups. This is our walkathon we had two weeks ago where we all got together and raised support and awareness of vitiligo. There are people around there that can make your patient feel like they're not alone in this world suffering with this horrible disease. So I think that'll help out the patient. It'll give them a little bit of hope. So with that, we will go to these uh, questions. Which of the following disorders is characterized by living melanocytes in the dermis? Oh, sweet Jesus.
All right, very good. Yes, the Hori Nevis. Um, and wow, it went from zero to 66%. Excelente. All right, next one. Common location for acanthosis nigricans of the face is? All right, 73% said that, and whoa, very good, 26 to 73%. Gosh, I thought after lunch you guys would be asleep. You guys were paying attention. Which wavelengths of light can induce hyperpigmentation in an individual with skin type 5? All of the above. Yes, well, you guys knew that one already. You guys are good test takers. Always pick all of the above. Which form of phototherapy causes the most hyperpigmentation? Uh, 56%. Yep, you guys got it right. Puva. And I think there's one more. The process by which a patient initially develops photosensitivity, but after a few weeks able to higher dose, is called. And photo adaptation, and I think you guys had that one already. I know that you probably have a lot of questions, and I know we're out of time, but I will be on that hornblower ship tonight. So if you want to just come, I need, I need to get a I Love San Diego sweatshirt because it's freezing here compared to Dallas. But as long as I find that sweatshirt, I'll be on that hornblower ship. You can ask me any question you want. Okay, thanks for your attention. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs. Recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.